ladies and gentlemen, to the Godzilla Pod War Hour. I'm Nathan Bear, and uh, who are you, sir? My name's Mike. We work together. Mike Kelly. Right, uh, right. I, I See, I knew that. I, I was just testing you. This, uh, this whole thing was our idea, remember? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To- totally. Uh, whatever you say, uh, mm, uh, uh, Mike, Mike. It's, a, it's right, actually right, a very yeah, yeah, common see, name. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. As soon as I, I saw you saying that, I was going to say the exact same thing. Um, a- anyways, uh, uh, Mike and I are here to talk about Mothra versus Godzilla, the 1964 masterpiece by uh, director Shiro Honda, uh, the follow-up to King Kong versus Godzilla, as well as 1961's Mothra. Right? That's correct. That's correct. This is the movie that really everything comes together, and uh, it's widely considered, aside from the original Godzilla film, to be the the best of, certainly the best of the sequels. Pumped about this one. This is the follow-up to King Kong vs. Godzilla, which we discussed last week. It's also the follow-up to the 1961 film Mothra, which uh, we have not discussed. Let's uh, go into a little details about Mothra, just so that way we can uh, pre-game into uh, this film. Sure, we can do a little, uh, little background. Mothra was based upon the book, which was really a collection of children's short stories, called... The Luminous Fairies and Mothra. So actually the the twin fairies got top billing. And in the books, there were four fairies. But they would later in the films, they whittled it down so it was just twins. Hey! And they were portrayed by the Peanuts. You mean Charlie Brown? Yes. (laughs) No, actually the Peanuts was a uh, pop group in Japan in the 1960s. And they were very popular, and they passed the litmus test of celebrity by appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show. A really uh, good shoe. Yeah, really so good a really good shoe. So they were very popular in their own right, but did not uh, reach international fame until their appearance in Mothra, and then uh, what, Mothra versus Godzilla. That movie is about a bunch of scientists looking for radiation on a luscious green island. Just a paradise. Yeah. This is a situation where you would want to intentionally shipwreck yourself on Infant Island as it is depicted in the original Mothra. And a bunch of scientists and a a certain industrialist and a shyster go onto this uh, island. Yes. And after uh, being attacked by a few venomous plants, they find uh, two tiny girls, about, uh, what, six inches, right? Yeah. Six inches, so uh, dick height. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is an average yes 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 uh, continue so, <laughs> so they uh, so uh they they find uh these girls and uh nelson the industrialist uh, oh yeah nelson yeah classic yeah, toho yeah. villain classic <laughs> a citizen of relicica if i'm not mistaken yes which is totally not the united states at yeah, all definitely not definitely, definitely not. not they have a completely different flag and almost near entirely Caucasian population. Nelson is an amazing villain because he is clearly evil from frame one. He does not try to hide the fact that he is the film's bad guy at all. He's just sort of got that insidious look in his eyes and he's kind of got that Cheshire cat smile and he's like often he's like rubbing his hands together and laughing and just being like yes we're all going to go to that island and we'll see what we'll see (laughs) it's like Nelson there was no joke there why are you laughing so yeah Nelson is amazing so Nelson at the cost of many local natives lives (laughs) whoops kidnaps uh, the girls and uh, instead of donating them to science or researching them uh, he pulls them into a P.T. Barnum 
scheme where he you know dresses them up and has them sing and dance their uh, their song. They do this in like a giant theater. And you would not be able to see the peanuts after like the third or fourth row because again they're like six inches tall. And the director of the film, Mr. Inshiro Honda, was 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 asked about this during the pre-production when they were you know planning it out. Like why would Nelson have this giant theater and like these people wouldn't even know what they're looking at? The, you know it would look like two dolls up on stage. And Honda was like, well, yeah. In their reality, there wouldn't be anything to see, and it would be extremely confusing. But the audience who is watching the film sees everything through my lens, and he sees everything through the camera, and they're you know plenty big. Like I framed them correctly, so the only thing that matters is what the people who are watching the film see, not the people in the film. Which I thought was like, I don't know, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm the director, damn it. Ah, uh, yeah, so there's uh, director Honda for you. Yes. Um, so, unbeknownst to uh, Nelson, though warned many times, by taking these girls off the island, he uh, evokes the wrath of Mothra, who uh, breaks out of its egg in larva form and charmingly swims <laughs> from the island to Tokyo. Yeah, uh, while accidentally <laughs> massacring a couple of liner boats and some fishing vessels, but, you know. Oops. Oh, oops. <laughs> After doing so, ma- makes a cocoon in the remains of Tokyo Tower. They wanted it to be the Diet Building. Oh. It wasn't spectacular enough. And Honda's like, no, it's got to be Tokyo Tower. Yeah, yeah. Got got, got, to, got, got to do a big landmark. So- something modern. Right. <laughs> so then the Relisican, I'm making quote marks in the air because I know you can see me. The Relisican government uh, offers up some giant flamethrowers yeah. for uh, use of destroying this big cocoon. And unfortunately, it kind of uh, speeds up the evolution process because Mothra, in probably one of the most beautiful scenes in film history, breaks free of the cocoon in full moth form and blows more stuff to shit. Yeah. 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 Makes it happen. And then Mothra flies to uh, San Francisco. I'm, I'm sorry, Relisica's yeah. capital. I don't know why you would say San Francisco. No. Because no. it looks exactly like San Francisco. <laughs> Yeah, and the fact that the main characters in the film fly Pan Am. Although it should be Pan Row. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the number six at Mao's Inn? (laughs) Mothra eventually gets back the girls, and they fly off, and everything goes back to normal. And that's pretty much the gist of Mothra, 1961's Mothra. That being said, we now come to 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla which starts with a storm. It's a very impressive scene and and pretty cool because it doesn't have any monsters in it. It's just an awesome display of Toho's technical prowess at the time of, you know, these are all very tight close-ups of their miniatures and water is one of the most difficult things to sort of film and make it look as though it's a large-scale element yes because it's the size of droplets and and so forth it always you know sort of gives itself away and they do a very good job of sort of covering that up and making it look like this is a really gigantic storm and the destruction is very spectacular and it's a very gripping way to start the movie yes and i remember as you mentioned there is no monster but just in the opening credits with the music i'm like fearing that something is going to pop out at the screen and scare me just through that whole sequence yeah but after the title sequence is over we then are brought to the uh, aftermath the day after uh where we meet our two first main characters junko and ichiro ichiro uh, sakai 
who are both uh, journalists. Uh, Junko is the photographer. Ichiro is the uh, well, he, he's the writing guy. Yes. Uh, you know that that that's that's what they call them, right? Reporter, I believe, is the term. Oh. No wonder people kept giving me strange or, looks. It could be Manistee. writing guy. Right, yeah, writing it could guy. Be writing Wasn't guy. Clark Kent a writing guy? I think Clark Kent was a violent maniac <laughs> who, in that film who killed at least 140,000 citizens of Metropolis. Just uh, like Mothra. I, did he... He didn't even work for the Daily Planet in that movie. Did he even go to the Daily Planet? Oh, right, at the end. Yes. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. At, for, at, the, at end. the end, yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, by this point, everybody knows who he is. Like, Lois winks at him. Is like, oh, right, Clark Kent. Yeah. I get it. Ha, ha, ha. You're wearing glasses. We'll see how that sequel yeah. goes. Ichiro and Junko are uh, studying the remains because Hurricane A destroyed an industrial project, and they have a brief exchange with a bucktooth politician whose uh, best line is, a good politician never lies. <laughs> yes, uh, it seems like, as a politician, he would have said that before in his political career. Yeah. Up until this point, you know. <laughs> it seems like if you're going to be the personality type to actually say a line that cheesy... It would have been during your first stump speech when you were starting out. You think he would have gone through that material by now, yeah. but I guess he's never said it before, or maybe it's his catchphrase. Yeah. That character get maximum impact on that guy, because he's only in the movie for about 40 seconds combined. Mm-hmm. He really makes a count. And you never forget him. <laughs> right. Ichiro is uh, upset at uh, Junko's uh, lack of uh, f- photographic skills. She uh, is about to take a photo of a very creepy object what it is we never are told we know it's radioactive yeah and myself my brother when we grew up watching this we always assumed because if you looked at at the godzilla suit they use on this film he seems to have a little section of his upper lip missing mm-hmm. and we always just thought that that was his piece of his lip ah. that fell off and like you know, of course, it's not to scale, but yeah. since when has scale been any sort of <laughs> issue yeah. in yeah. these movies? <laughs> I think, uh, you know, so... Uh, it could be like a Godzilla cell or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like a cell, a scale, something that just touched him and mutated. Yeah. Meanwhile, a giant egg... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> a monster egg ends up at the beach, and a bunch of mindful uh, fishermen joyfully bring it on to the beach itself because they are protected by a Shinto priest who encourages them to go out. When they go to the egg, uh, Junko and Ichiro, uh, they meet uh, Professor Mira, who is uh, busy uh, picking away at the egg and uh, doing you know, scientific things. Um, now, Nate, uh, Professor Mira looks familiar to uh, me. Who yes. is that? Oh, well, uh, you might remember him from that other film that should not be named, <clears throat> Godzilla Raids Again. He is uh, Hiroshi Kazume, who played uh, one of the main characters in that film. This film, however, grants him full immunity from that film because his performance is amazing. Probably one of the few scientists in a science fiction film who isn't completely mad, who is actually uh, a well drawn out character. Uh, he seems to always have, uh, you know, like in all pulp science fiction, the convenient tools, yeah. uh, you know, because he, he isn't a specific, you know, he isn't a zoologist. He is, you know, he's just a scientist. He's not a paleontologist. Yes. He's not a monsterologist. He always has his proper equipment to take samples. Uh, He took his giant monster egg analysis kit to the beach (laughs) and has a team of people who I can only assume are his underlings uh, analyzing the, the scratchings from the egg at the beginning of the scene. And then the two reporters come up to discuss what is happening. And that's when the real human villain of the piece 
comes around the corner. I mean, who who is that particular individual? Oh, that is uh, Kumayama, the great entrepreneur. Yes. Yes, yes, Kumayama, who, like Nelson in the original Mothra, uh, you just know this guy is evil from the beginning. He's a shyster, he, and he's... He knows. He knows. And he, he does not care. He relishes being a shyster so much. He's not cartoonish to the point where he's strumming his mustache, but he definitely knows. He's bought this egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kumiyama has purchased the egg from the fisherman. And you can already tell that he has, like... He's just so happy with the amount of money because I believe he calculated the wholesale price of a chicken egg and then yes. multiplied it by several thousand. several thousand or whatever the scale of the yes. egg is, and then, and then he you know paid that sum. <laughs> it's all very scientific. <laughs> this is an interesting part of the movie because it's like you would think right here when the egg is found, this is when some type of government entity would intervene and be like, my God, we have to seal off this entire beach. But no, apparently this egg is just up for grabs. Whoever finds it could just buy it. Which may be saying something about the state of politics in Japan at the time. Donald Ritchie, uh, before he passed away, mentioned that he doesn't believe Japan is a true democracy and that it's more of an oligarchy. The businesses basically control everything. And uh, when you look at the history of chemical companies have done to the rivers in Japan, similar to the way they have done uh, here in the United States, you can see that Kumbayama is actually not too far off from the real people who do horrible things to the environment and uh, suffer no consequences and lose no sleep. That's right. Even in the early 60s, there was already this sort of sense of corporate greed kind of taking over and and needing to be lampooned and sort of represented as, you know, again, really the villain of this movie. Yeah, uh, Kurosawa's, I believe, 1960 film, uh, The Bad Sleep Well, was a serious film where Toshiro Mifune is basically uh, fighting against, uh, it's a Hamlet-like story where he's avenging his father's death at the hands of a corporate president. And, well, you'll have to watch the movie yourself. But this idea has been around for a while, and they've been jabbing at it. But this is obviously a different take from a different perspective, uh, and in Toho color. So, yes, Kumiyama purchases the egg with the intention of turning it into a theme park of some kind, I guess. So, yeah... Because his company's called Happy Enterprises. Yes, Happy Enterprises. Surprisingly enough, not a pharmaceutical company or a maritime insurance company. This is kind of one of those exceptions. It's just Happy Enterprises. The thrust of the first third of the movie is the reporters investigating Kumiyama and his partner. Mr. Uh, Torahata. Torahata. They're scheming around this egg and just the complete reckless disregard for what might be in this egg or what will happen when it hatches. Mm. They seem to have no plan B or even plan A. What they mean to do is build an incubator around this egg and hatch it. And I don't know. It just seems like the insurance premiums they would pay alone would bankrupt them. It's almost as if they were just waiting for something like this to happen. Yeah, yeah. They were just like, God, if only an egg would land on the beach, we'd make at least a billion. Yeah. <laughs> they are the focus of, of the early part of the film. And uh, while the reporters are questioning Torhata and Kumiyama at the hotel, that's when we first get our 
that's when we get the first glimpse of the peanuts in this film. Yes, because uh, the the Happy Enterprise uh, gang is uh, busy, uh, you know, rubbing their hands and <laughs> over this project. The two twin fairies from uh, Mothra ask them to return. The egg. And of course, like any good businessman, they attempt to kill <laughs> these two six-inch girls immediately. Well, they're only six inches tall, yeah, first of yeah. all. So they'd never find the bodies. They'd never find the bodies. <laughs> you know, um, sell them to a hot dog company. <laughs> exactly. Again, the recklessness of... You'd think by now, Kumiyama and Torahata would know who these girls are. The events of Mothra are only about three years ago, and I assume it would be a, a pretty big news story that, you know, what happened with Mothra. And I'm assuming sense. that's why this one takes place in Nagoya and not Tokyo, because if Tokyo wasn't destroyed by Mothra, it had to be destroyed by King Kong and Godzilla. Correct. So I, I'm assuming that's why we're in Nagoya this time. And yet they continue just to be like, ah, be quiet, you know, and they try to, like, capture them and put them on display again, that snake oil salesman Gene kicks in and they're like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll put them on display as well. But luckily, the, the reporters interject and prevent that from happening. Yes. So the, the, the reporters and uh, Professor Mura, they become friends briefly with the girls, but they find the situation hopeless. Kumayama wants to steal them, or excuse me, buy them, and put them on display like Nelson. And then uh, the reporters uh, can't see any way of legally overturning them. Again, a look at uh, politics in the 1960s. So the twins fly off with Mothra, who somehow is not seen by anyone. He's just laying there on a mountain. <laughs> yes. Doing Mothra things. It's a pretty shocking scene. After trying to reason with Torahata and Kumiyama, the reporters return to the woods where the peanuts have sort of been hanging out. And all of a sudden, they sort of turn to their left, basically, and, oh, there's Mothra. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh... Which was pretty frightening as a kid. Yeah. Just, it was just like, ah! Well, ah. <laughs> this, this cue, this music cue that Fukube has is just this crazy, um... It's like, hor like sharp horns. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the, uh, the overhead shot in Psycho... When he uh, stabs uh, the guy Martin on the stairs. Yeah, on the stairs. It's yeah. like, if you just saw that, it wouldn't be scary. But the strings, yeah. this, the, it sounds like a shrieking. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it makes that thing just yeah, so it, shocking. It's the, it's definitely the scariest Mothra has ever been. <laughs> uh, it's probably the only jump scare that we can attribute to Mothra. Uh, all of Fukube. Well, except for uh, Nightmare on Odo Island. <laughs> yeah. Jason and Mothra's Revenge. But still, you know, even that, that scene is, um, the reporters aren't overcome with the insanity of the situation. They're just sort of kind of solemnly take all this in because, you know, that's what Honda is so great at is just seamlessly tying together these elements of this, what is, for all purposes, just a complete fantasy world. And he's, he's really working in concert with the Fukube to, to pull that off.
so the egg is remaining. And uh, not only that, Kumayama decides that he needs to start actually incubate it. You know, yeah, the actual, yeah, the actual yeah. act want, of incubation. They want to hatch this thing. Mm-hmm. Or, or kill it, <laughs> yeah. you know. I... <laughs> no incubate, probably kill. Yeah. Probably kill, just so yeah. the egg can stay there until it, you know, rots. And, and uh, no, one, no, one, no one questions them <laughs> about this, so. But, uh, you know, go figure. Uh, industrialists. <laughs> We should mention that around this time, Godzilla makes his first appearance. Yes. First, they uh, they check out this uh, blob, this blob of something. Right. Uh, and Professor Muro scans it and says, ah, this is radioactive. Oh. So they... Yes. And he also says that the two reporters are radioactive yes. as well. And he's <laughs> like... Luckily, we just so happen to have this anti-radiation chamber over here. If you guys go in there, you can get unirradiated. But just and they go in there. He holds up his head, turns on, and uh, turns the crank, and this purple smoke kind of comes in. And all of a sudden, all the radiation has been cleared from their bodies. Whee! Uh, so it was very uh, forward-thinking technology there by <laughs> Toho. Uh, that we still do not have in 2013. Yep. <laughs> oh, the people at the Fukushima plant had the same stuff. Wouldn't wouldn't that be great? Um. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, all horrendous jokes aside, uh, now we get to the serious part where they go back to check the uh, the area. Still not completely. Uh, cleared from uh, Hurricane A, where they once again meet the goofy politician, who never lies. They talk to him, and he's very upset that they're testing the place for radiation, because, you know, God forbid, if such a concern were raised, and, you know... I mean, it's a legitimate concern. Yes, yes. You you don't want, especially at some sort of press junket, (laughs) these guys to show up with a Geiger counter and be like, wait a minute, this place is nuclear. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, he could have worked it in and and said, I wanted them here because I, you know, as a good politician, not only do I not lie, but I make sure that this place is (laughs) radiation-free. He's not a very good politician. No, no. (laughs) He he, has been, I think he's been in politics about as long as the photographer has been taking pictures maybe i think it's their both of their first days uh maybe that's why he said a good politician never lies yeah these are just notes he wrote down on his way to start politicking earlier that day while they're there uh, junko uh, begins looking at or about to take a photograph of the barren ground uh, and she says to uh, Sakai, uh, I wanted to take a photo, but the ground keeps moving. So everyone starts staring at the ground. Professor Mura points his Geiger counter at it, and the uh, radiation levels instantly go up. Uh, right. So uh, we know that... Uh, it's, Something bad. Yeah. Godzilla's tail pops out of the ground, and uh, then the rest of Godzilla uh, lumbers out. Uh, and of course, the inevitable screams and hollers and the, Oh! Oh! Godzilla! It's... I, th- I mean, it's his best entrance in any yeah. of the movies. It's just shocking. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, in what other scenario are you going to have Godzilla come up through the ground? It's, yeah. It's always like, you know, half the time it'll be some flying saucer, you know, Jet Jaguar going to Monster Island to get him and then he'll mm-hmm. swim there. It's it's never, he's never just jumps out of the ground and um, it's... It's great because everyone's completely taken off guard. And the following sequence is probably one of the greatest, you know, the whole movie's a highlight reel, but this is one of the greatest assaults, city assaults 
really more for its, its sparing use of city destruction and more you get the, the semblance of Godzilla is just a big dumb animal yeah. <laughs> just going through a city yeah. and just knocking stuff down. Yeah. Uh, the way it's done is really cool because they didn't have as much money. Even though King Kong vs. Godzilla made a shitload of money, they still didn't have that big of a budget. But what they did have enough money for was they bought this optical printer that there were only were two of them in the whole world. I think the it's time. like probably more of a specific optical printer. Yeah, yeah. Like a better like. Oh no! Like it, was, it was it was basically yeah. It was like a prototype. Yeah. The only other one of its kind was in use at the Walt Disney Corporation to make movies like Mary Poppins and stuff and things where you had animation and live action combined and they used this technology to instead of building uh, the elaborate city sets for Godzilla to destroy instead they just ended up inserting him into live action background plates of the actual city of Nagoya Mm -hmm. and uh, what happens is as a result of sort of this different style of doing it there are a couple of shots where it just looks utterly realistic. You get an idea of what it would be like if Godzilla actually attacked a city. You can kind of see it and imagine what it would be like through this footage. And, you know, one of the many reasons why this film is great. And then, of course, he goes to Nagoya Castle. And, uh, well, well di- didn't you actually uh, visit that castle when you went to Japan? Th- that's correct, Nate. I went to uh, Japan in 2006. And... I went to Japan in 2006 and I visited several cities. One of them was Nagoya. Uh, ostensibly, we were there for a study abroad program for Michigan State University, but I was really just on a Godzilla monster destruction <laughs> greatest hits uh, tour. It was it was like going to my mecca, and, and and you know we spent a whole day in Nagoya, mm-hmm. and it was incredible. Um, I saw the television tower that Godzilla destroys. And then we went to Nagoya Castle, and which was still standing. It was which was still standing. <laughs> and the cool thing was, you know, the rest of the city is obviously radically changed from 1964 to 2006. But Nagoya Castle is is an ancient Japanese castle, so <laughs> nothing has changed. So it looks exactly the same as it does in this scene where Godzilla sort of lumbers over, and again, kind of accidentally destroys this castle just not even you know no not malevolent at all just kind of just lumbering around just just trips falls into it knocks it down just like oh you know and just walks on he's just again he's just a big dumb animal you know it's just like if an an elephant (laughs) was that was you know enlarged to this size and allowed to just go around a city stuff like this would happen you know so it was no it was a insane it was crazy it it should be noted that uh another aspect of this that makes uh the uh that adds to godzilla's realism is the uh, shots of fleeing people which uh several websites and books have cited to ashura honda's experience during world war ii uh he was uh i believe an infantryman in uh, china during what's known as the sino-japanese war which is when uh, Japan invaded uh, first Manchuria and uh, annexed that, creating Manchukuo, and then invading China proper. And I believe it was these experiences as being, to the Chinese, as horrific as Godzilla is to Japan, uh, just seeing people fleeing, gathering what little they had, and running away from a monstrosity. It's clear that this experience adds to the realism 
Right. And later leads to more uh, hu- the, the more humanistic aspects that are brought up throughout this film, the, uh, the humanist uh, undertones right. to this film. A sort of return to that after the outright slapstick of uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, which is pretty cool. Or at least the slapstick that had begun to seep into the series, that sort of a rebound here and then a full relapse later on in the series. <laughs> oh. um, but anyways, yeah, Godzilla is back. And here's the biggest change. From the American version to the Japanese version is this is the fourth film in the series, and by now there's very little tampering. Um, they dub the actors, obviously, but aside from that, you know, and just the things you'd have to do, replacing the the titles and things like that, it's pretty much intact. However, uh, Toho did shoot some additional footage. Uh, known as the Frontier Missile Sequence, uh, which really has no effect on the plot whatsoever. It's yeah. just there to be like, oh, look, we're in a Godzilla movie. It's just more spectacle. Yeah. So uh, you, you see the same white people you've seen in uh, Mothra and in uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla right. and Adaragon. Basically everyone who is in the submarine in King Kong vs. Yeah, Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. one of the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the scientists from King Kong vs. Godzilla is back. I'd like to imagine that he made it out of the sub and it's actually the same character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one who was smart enough to know that it was Godzilla. So. Yeah. <laughs> Oops! But, uh, yeah, so uh, they, they shoot the Frontier missiles, which are these completely useless and lumbering uh, <laughs> rockets that I, I, I don't know what they're supposed to do. Well, they explode. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that. that they explode, uh, cause a huge mess. Um, it does nothing to affect Godzilla, but it's just like this cute moment. Uh, well, yeah, they, uh, they, they bombard him. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a very dynamic sequence, and the editing is really Eisenstinian. Cool. There's a lot of cross-cutting, and it sort of ends... Uh, kind of a, on an ambiguous note because they they get him down for the count. He's you know, he, the end of the scene is he's knocked down. So some people have said that maybe the reason why they stop attacking is because they plum run out of missiles and they just like oh, all right. Well, we know the frontier missile works. Next time, bring more of them. Yeah. Or you know, and they immediately sail back to America. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, you know. They, if they had enough of him, they probably could have killed him, <laughs> you know, edited it right there. Meanwhile, our heroes are at uh, the, uh, at the you know, Japanese Gazette or whatever newspaper they work for, and uh, they're discussing with the editor uh, what to do. Godzilla's, you know, destroying Nagoya, and nothing is working. Uh, then the uh, more comical member of the crew comes in eating his egg as he's been since the beginning of the film. Probably the same egg, too. It's a, it's a great piece of humor because it's so understated. Mm-hmm. And it really works. And it's really very subtly worked into every scene. And that's what makes it so funny because the rest of the movie is a little bit more serious in its yeah. tone. And this guy just underplays it and everyone acts like it's normal that this guy is always eating a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> Every time he shows up, which means he probably goes through like 20 a day, but like, um, you know, it's just yet another reason why this movie is looked upon so fondly. It's because the comedy relief is actually funny. Yeah. You know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Unlike in Raids Again, where it was just uncalled for and probably not even intentional. Uh, Raids Again, that whole movie was comedy relief. <laughs> Except I cried my eyes out. <laughs> just so full of joy <laughs> and pain. Full of hate. So, uh, uh he comes in and, uh, just uh, nonchalantly, uh, suggests that, uh, if only Mothra would fight Godzilla, that they'd never have to deal with him again. Uh, the editor dismisses this and realizes, you know, takes a moment to take in the information and then says, Ah! You're a genius! And then he says, Ah, I know, I was thinking maybe I should get a raise. <laughs> and then the editor immediately chastises him and, and tells him to, to leave again. So and and, and stay by the egg. Yeah, yeah. He can't leave the egg. He has right. to stay by the egg that isn't moving. Yeah. He has to stay by it. So, Junko, Jiro, and Professor uh, Mira decide to uh, go to um, Infant Island and uh, persuade Mothra. They decide to have a sit-down with Mothra. Yeah. <laughs> Play a few drums, smoke a few blunts. You know, hey, you know, it'd be really, really helpful if you could get rid of Godzilla. <laughs> they, you see Infant Island, and it's it's, you know so different from from what it is in, in the original film it's completely devastated and it, it looks like a hellish nightmare scape basically i mean it's just rock and irradiated beasts you know, beasts. You know I'm, I'm assuming these are like mutated creatures that like mutated like godzilla got really big and then died so you've got these big corpses yeah. and a like a huge turtle cage yeah and, um who knows yeah. what that was yeah. when i was growing up i always thought that mothra was the you know i i didn't see her as a god but more just a uh, result of being on infant island and being exposed to the radiation and this was just a moth that had grown to gigantic size i knew nothing about yeah you know, this is before i saw the original film so i i saw the you know the the peanuts the the twin fairies as oh well the reason why they're small and they've got telepathy and everything is because of the radiation mm -hmm. also this is why mothra is so big because it's just all this you know radiation side effects and that is not a that's not a popular theory that is a personal mm -hmm. theory that's yeah. that's how my you know six-year-old brain made sense of what i was seeing but i i just assumed that they were gods yeah and, uh... You know, and that and that this was a fight between uh, the sacred world and uh, the the world of man. You know, Mothra being that uh, spiritual entity, a god, and then Godzilla being uh, a abomination created by man. This scene again falls under the category of it makes perfect sense because at first the surviving members of the the surviving inhabitants of Infant Island are very reluctant to even have a, a sit-down or even allow them to see Mothra. And justifiably so. Uh, they, their land has been uh, ravaged and, you know, they... Why should they let them see Mothra? I mean, they haven't returned the egg. They kidnapped the girls three years ago. You know, not the reporters themselves, yeah. but man, man has done this. The outside world has done this. So the way the scene plays out is really cool because first they're talking to the chief and he is very grim and very, you know, may your land be ruined just as ours. And you think that you, you start to hear the peanuts singing and it's this beautiful, melodic, you know, enchanting 
song and you think, oh, well, okay, now the peanuts are going to step in and they're going to say, yes, of course you can use Mothra. And they sing their song and then they're like, no, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't use Mothra. Like the, this, this little area is the last green left on the island. Uh-huh. Everything else has been destroyed. Our people are dead. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to deal with Godzilla yourself. And then, really, the the human characters, the, the reporters, uh, Ichiro in, in particular. I'm sorry. Well, actually, the, the 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 photographer starts off, and she sort of begs, and then Ichiro picks up the slack and makes this very impassioned speech. That was it's just basically Ichiro Honda directly talking to the audience. Yeah, and. You know, what... and, and this is a motif that goes throughout his films. Uh, even in the Mysterians, it's always, um, you know, peace first, then let's fight, let's work things out, and uh, and it also uh, a constant mo- uh, you know, theme is, you know, if we would all just put aside our differences, we could get rid of the larger threats to our existence. Right. You know, if we'd stop looking at East versus West, we we could, you know, and Godzilla can represent a number of things in this case you know cancer uh, hunger you know there's so much that uh we could do if we would but put aside our differences can't you at least trust us we We cannot trust you because your people have offended us now what our mission has failed there's nothing we can do Please listen. We do understand. But do not blame every one of us for what has happened. The monster is killing everyone. The good are being killed, as well as the evil. Are you going to let innocent men die alongside of guilty men? You have no right to decide that. That right is sacred. My friends and I appeal to you with the utmost humility. Our people aren't able to stop Godzilla. We would truly like to help you, but we need your help first. Refuse us and... And everyone will die. Just as you distrust us, so we distrust others as well. It's wrong. We're all human. As humans, we're responsible to each other. We are related. Refuse us and you abandon your brothers. We must learn to help each other. After making this speech, Mothra summons everyone's attention, and including the Peanuts and, and the reporters. They all run to Mothra. Mothra's sort of sitting in her temple, kind of chilling out, and she communicates with uh, the Peanuts, and they, in turn, relay that she has agreed to fight. Uh, however, Mothra mentions that it is dying, and that, you know, if it leaves the island, it shall not be coming back. However... It shall be reborn within the egg that right. washed ashore. Right. So, so it's uh, it's on. The the pieces of the puzzle are stacked up now, and it's time. It's time. Time for some rumble. Yes. So uh, their main characters go back to Japan. Meanwhile, the army is uh, busy uh, wasting time, <laughs> thinking, pretending that they can stop Godzilla. Yes. Um, and uh, th- this time their plan makes a little bit more sense than it has in, uh, at least in King Kong versus Godzilla, where it's a little bit more comical. In-, in this case, they have decided to rig up 
platforms that will generate artificial lightning. Uh, so uh, li this lightning will strike Godzilla and kill him. Uh, right. And they try uh, twice to do this and are unsuccessful. Uh, the uh, general in this uh, sequence, by the way, is played by uh, Susumu Fujita, uh, who was in Kurosawa's first film, Sagata Sanshiro. Uh, he's also in numerous other, you know, Toho, uh, films, Adaragahan, uh, is just, uh, is a well-known Toho actor. Uh, he also is in Tora 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 as one of the Japanese admiral. Uh, that's just a bit of information to, uh, <laughs> uh, satisfy your curiosity. It should be noted that, um, the army almost kills Godzilla here. I mean, they're very close. They've got him down again. As was the case with the frontier missile scene, they almost defeat him. I mean, right. they drop these electricity conducting nets that, and they keep on dropping them over and over on Godzilla and the the electrical towers uh, use these nets as a conductor, and they they have him down. He's on the ground. He's clearly being damaged, and they if they probably would have kept on going for another five minutes, they could have you know probably killed him, but. And what I've only sort of picked this up the last time I uh, I watched the movie, they there's a there's a subtle theme of of greed and avarice and sort of pushing things too far, and you can see that with Torahata and Kumayama, but you can also see it here where like they you know they could have had him, but the guy decides to increase the voltage, and then of course it overheats uh, everything, the machines melt, and Godzilla gets the upper hand. And um, is free to go on his way. So I always thought that was kind of interesting that they the plan came very close to actually working, and this was a rare sort of semi victory for the military. Hmm. Godzilla keeps going on his merry merry way <laughs> now that nothing can stop him, right. and makes his way towards the eggs. Uh, our heroes have uh, gone to the egg where they meet uh, their egg loving companion, uh, as well as other members of the police force, uh, who they say that Mothra now plans to save, provided that uh, the egg is not smashed. Uh, and this, of course, happens while Godzilla is about, oh, you know, a block yeah. away from... Well, well, Godzilla has some very important business to tend to, and that is killing the villains of the film. By this point, Torahata and Kumayama have turned on each other. Kumayama is infuriated because Torahata made him borrow his own money and then charge interest on it. And uh, they sort of fight each other. It's a very violent scene. Kumiyama pummels Torhat in the face like 15 times. And like his face is covered in, in gore. The, the, the great thing about the scene is like Kumiyama, after delivering the haymakers, um, Torhat is sort of out of it. And you see his point of view and he looks out the window and he's just, oh, there's Godzilla. <laughs> you know, like half a mile away. And uh, I always thought that was one of the scariest reveals of him because... If Godzilla really existed, I'm sure stuff like that would happen in real life all the time. Like, people would be caught up in their petty little whatever, and then you just sort of look out the window and be like, oh, wait, Godzilla's like half a mile away, yeah. and it's too late at that point to get out of there. And, uh, you know, Torahata murders Kumayama with his pistol that he keeps in his desk. Um, there's a little difference between the American version and the Japanese version. In the Japanese version, they actually see the front of Kumayama's head uh, kind of blow out with with viscera and blood 
And then Torhata grabs his money, tries to make a run for it, and Godzilla just zeroes in on him and destroys the entire hotel for good measure and uh, and kills him. And they're both wiped clean. And Godzilla, by instinct, zeroes in right to the egg. And uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, our heroes are, of course, worried about the egg. And, you know, when it seems like Godzilla is actually going to blow it up, suddenly, you know, there, Mothra, and Mothra comes in. And, you know, Godzilla, in all these films, has always been the badass. Even against King Kong, doesn't phase him. When he sees Mothra, he is in the presence of a god. And right. he is in, he is scared. And you, you can feel it. He seems concerned. Yes. He, he seems like it sort of wakes him up out of his stupor. And this is the most animated he is in the film because he's very, very slow and methodical. Um, but but when Mothra comes, he knows that there, this is a huge problem. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, even with his tiny marble brain, he can process. It should be said that um, the Mothra puppet is uh, one of the great achievements of all of Monster Suit, Monster Prop. Toho's entire monster uh, production career, it's, I mean, it's incredible. The, the wingspan was over 15 feet in the studio. So if you can imagine that, um, that's extremely impressive. And it, he looks great, certainly looks a lot better. He's almost twice as big as the prop that they used in the original Mothra. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's... It looks amazing during this fight. The the arms and the head and the antenna were all radio controlled. It was not a man in a suit. It was a giant marionette, essentially. But you can never see the wires. Yeah, even to this day. I mean, there are some scenes in, like, the earlier Godzilla films where you can see, like, the wires on the planes, but not Mothra. You can't see a thing. Yeah. You know, it is so lifelike. Absolutely sold it for me when yeah. I was looking at this as a kid. There was never a second where I was thinking, oh, that's a... This is a prop, or yeah. it never looks fake. Yeah, as insanely impossible as the image uh, of a a moth the size of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> how that should be so wrong in your mind. You're looking at it, and somehow it's believable. And that's just a testament to how hard they worked. So Mothra comes in and kicks Godzilla's ass. Godzilla, you know, tries to use his flame. He tries. Everything, Mothra grabs his tail, throws him around, blows him away. Poisons him. Yeah, poisons him, you know, uses poison powder. I mean, just everything. Unfortunately, uh, Mothra is dying, uh, so decides in the middle of the fight to just, you know, go over by the egg and uh, and die. Godzilla Uh, gets off a a lucky shot, basically. He's... He's going on full-on fire breath, just spraying the general area of Mothra the whole time desperately trying to defend himself and he gets off a lucky shot uh blows up the end of her the tip of her wing and and she's like she's completely exhausted the peanuts inform us that the poison uh yellow gas that she deploys uh is her last defense anyway so she's she's dying basically Mm -hmm. this is her last stand and uh yeah she goes over uh to be by the egg and and dies the islanders can sense that Mothra is is the the spirit is transferring from the mother to to the to the egg to whatever is inside the egg, and there is much vigorous dancing. Yes, <laughs> another song and dance number, which is another thing that Ishiro Honda is quite good at doing. These like 
you know, not quite Busley Berkeley, but just these intricate dance numbers that uh, are never like bad. They yeah. always seem to fit. Like it is cheesy as the storyline can get. There's never a wrong moment for a dance number. Right. And uh, the dancing pays uh, dividends as the egg does indeed hatch and two twin larvae jump out. And uh, it's one of the cool sort of surprises of the movie is that there are two. And uh, they proceed to engage in the final conflict with Godzilla. Yes, where Godzilla moves his way over to a far island and, of course... Where uh, there's children trapped. Yes, as in the tradition of... (laughs) Because you need uh, another challenge. Yes, you need a challenge. As in the tradition of, you know, Battleship Potemkin, you can't create real drama unless there is a a child or children You have to insert that human element there. (laughs) It's like, there's not enough at stake. You have to also have... The children. Yeah, uh, after the children. So uh, he, he's going to attack some uh, school children uh, on an island uh, <laughs> he's, he's, who, who are practicing for Battle Royale. His evil monster sonar, he can sense that the, <laughs> the school children are trapped on the island and he's going to Godzilla them to death. Yeah. <laughs> he goes over there, uh, followed, of course, by the newly hatched larvae who already know instinctively that they need to kick Godzilla's butt. Yeah. This is... They're quick studies. Yeah. (laughs) They've only been around for a few minutes, but they know it's time to fight another giant monster. (laughs) They're going to fit in just fine (laughs) here. So, so they, they, they wiggle their way across the ocean while Godzilla destroys some, uh, you know, fish markets and boats. And they proceed to cover him in a web. One will distract, and the other one will shoot, and it, it's a back and forth between the two. They out, uh, like King Kong did, you know, they use their brains. Right. Whereas Godzilla's mere brute force. They use their brains, so that's how um, they defeat him, and uh, they cover him in lots of sticky white stuff. Um, a web, of course. Which um, was actually a liquid styrofoam compound. That really? was incredibly difficult to remove once you got it on anything, and the only way to clean it off was with gasoline. Oh. The gasoline was the only thing that would, would dissolve it. So after take after take of this, of the of the Godzilla suit being covered in the substance, they would have to soak it in gasoline. Oh. And then they would just have to... So hopefully this sequence was filmed. Yeah. After the uh, bombardment by the military where the suit actually... His, his head actually catches on fire. Yes, a lucky yes. tank gets a shot off. Or actually, I think they're dropping napalm at him. Yeah, they're, they're, at they're dropping point. napalm. And that, that'll affect the uh, next film in the series, which we'll mention when we get to it. Yeah. But that, that uh, yeah. fire was... I don't I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but it affected the suit. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, they, they had to wash the suit in... Uh, in gasoline. And just another thing where, you know, working on one of these movies was a death wish, basically. <laughs> you know, uh, Shiro Honda, is this, uh, is this, you know, uh, is, is, this this safe? A, is this safe? I, I don't think our union regulations, <laughs> union regulations be damned. This is Toho. <laughs> uh, get me, get me more gasoline. I still see him spinge there. Blast it on with a hose. Uh, there's 6,000 watt lights over there, Mr. Honda. Quiet, you. Replace him. Uh, the awesome thing about this battle is that there is no way these larvae should be able to defeat Godzilla. They are so much weaker than him. He is, like, unkillable. But by being smart and by waiting for their shots and cherry-picking and just being patient, they eventually cover him in their webbing and cocoon him, and they win. And that, that I've kept that with me my whole life whenever I've had to do something— 
that's like really hard. I think I just think of those, you know, larvae like just taking their time and just being patient and just picking their shots and eventually they topple Godzilla. And it's like, yeah, okay, you know, just think of things in a different way and, and use your use your smarts. And then of course the uh the moths uh bobble their way back to uh, Infant Island and their ends uh probably one of the uh, I consider this if I had two favorite Godzilla films, it would be Mothra versus Godzilla first, and then the original 1954 Godzilla. Uh, how, how would you? Uh, well, with... you know, it goes back and forth between this and Godzilla 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, I just grew up with with both of them. This was the first one I ever saw. This was the first Godzilla movie I ever saw, and it definitely opened my mind i I just couldn't believe what watching this as a kid that's people would work on a concept that if you said it to someone it is so silly you know mm-hmm. a giant a dinosaur fighting a giant moth and but it's just done so well and people clearly worked so hard on it it's so effective and um this film routinely gets placed on uh, lists of the best science fiction, not just the best Godzilla movies, but like the best science fiction films of the entire 1960s. It's up there with Planet of the Apes. It's up there with Alphaville. Um, and, you know, I think I can say that with with some some assurance there. I mean, it really, this was the peak. The music is, is incredible. This is, I can say with confidence, this is Akira Fukube's best score mm-hmm. of, of any, probably movie. Uh, that he ever scored, um, but certainly any Godzilla movie he ever scored. He personally says that his favorite score, his best score, was Godzilla versus Desestroya. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think that's just because he was senile by then. Yeah. Of all the Godzilla films, this is the one I still watch, not for the purposes of nostalgia, mm-hmm. but just because it's a really good movie, and I can still watch it as an adult and be consistently entertained, not only during the parts with the monsters, but... The parts where the human characters are interacting, the script is just tight. What uh, made the marriage work so well was the work relationship between, I think, Ishiro Honda and E.J. Superaya, the special effects. Because the monster scenes are shot by Superaya, whereas the human scenes are shot by Mr. Honda. And unlike a lot of directors who normally would... Um, you know, just let special effects do what they wanted and not care. You know, it's just, I'm here, I'll just shoot the people, talk, and then leave. Honda had a vested interest in this, and I believe it was according to one of his assistant directors, he would frequently go to the special effects sets, see what Subaraya was doing, so that way they could uh, combine what they were shooting better, so there was a more fluidity to their work. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, step uh, in, in movie making in general. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Peter Jackson during Lord of the Rings, it seemed that he had a vested interest in both the actors as well as the special effects. Uh, George Lucas in the original trilogy definitely had a vested interest in both the special effects as well as the human characters. Right. This is the high water market. It uh, now begins the slow... <laughs> The slow decline. Uh, You know, it's it's gonna be so much fun (laughs) discussing it. (laughs) Um, So uh, next week, Idra the three headed monster. Shit just starts getting crazy in the series. (laughs) Like, oh man.